turn with me, if you will, to the book of Judges. We are gradually and slowly making our way through the scriptures. And uh, our hope along the way through this sermon series, it's called True and Better, is to show that Jesus Christ is the one that all the scriptures are written about, pointing to him. So even as we read Old Testament stories, we're seeing how Christ is the true and better Abraham, the true and better Adam, the true and better Isaac, Joseph, Joshua was last week. And this morning, I want to look at um, Gideon, the story of Gideon. The book of Judges is a unique book, and uh, we'll, we'll talk more about it in a moment. When you found the book of Judges, say, got it. Got it. Now, do you really have it or did you just want to yell? <laughs> okay, well... Uh, Listen, our men had a great time together. If you walked in the door to the smell of bacon and maple syrup, you're welcome, right? Uh, That's the best way to wake up, I think. But I've been thinking a lot about manhood lately and um, really passionate about restoring biblical masculinity, um, what that looks like. And uh, one of the attributes of a biblical man is that he's a man of courage, Man of courage. Think for a moment. If I ask you, how would you define courage? What would you say? How would you define it? You don't have to answer out loud. But what is courage? It's it's one of those attributes that's sort of beneath the surface. You you know it when you see it, but it's a little bit harder to define. Let me give you uh, just a simple definition, one that might be helpful as we dig into it today. Very simple definition for courage. Here's the way I'd like to define it. Courage is the will to do what you're afraid to do. Courage is the will to do what you're afraid to do. It it doesn't mean you're fearless. No man in the room would say he has no fears. But it does mean that you push through your fears and whatever it is that you feel you need to do, you do it anyway. Every week, getting up in front of all of you guys takes a little bit of courage. It's something uh, that still I get a little bit afraid to do. And I have to get up and be like, you know, this is, this is for you, Lord. Not, not for me, not for them. So pressing through what you're afraid to do and doing it anyway, that's... Courage, And today when we look at the life and leadership of Gideon, we're going to see a man who needed a lot of courage. So Judges chapter 6 and 7 will be our focus. The story of Gideon actually goes from 6, 7, and 8. Uh, of the judges, he's the one that most is written about. Um, for sake of time, we won't be able to read all of it, but we will read a good bit of his story. Give you some context. We left off last time with the story of Joshua and his conquest of the city of Jericho. They marched around the city, blew their trumpets. The walls of Jericho, that great city, came down and the people conquered and they began um, a story of conquest. If you read the rest of the book of Joshua, that's what you'd have to say. Well, this is a a book of great conquest. The, The people of God are just marching in and taking a city and taking another city and taking another city. It's a a story of conquest. At the end of Joshua's life, in the very last chapter of the book of Joshua, uh, he called for Israel to serve the Lord. It's like he was finishing his days and he's finishing them with this this last exhortation. He says, um, choose this day whom you will serve. 
He says, as for me and my house, we will finish it. We will serve the Lord. That's right. Joshua 24, 15. So that's the way Joshua finished um, his days is calling the people of Israel to faithfully serve the Lord. When Joshua died. The people fell apart. They did not follow through with their commitment. You know, when Joshua said, serve the Lord and the people, they, they said, we will we'll serve the Lord. And then he died. And it wasn't very long before they were a total mess. The book of Judges opens right up there. The, the book of Judges records the time period between Joshua's leadership and the installation of King Saul as king. So it's about 350 years, roughly, time that spans between Joshua's leadership and King Saul. And during that time, the people of God are continuing to take land But it's not uh, the story of conquest that we had in the book of Joshua. God had told the people, when you take a land, you need to drive out all the inhabitants. Take their stuff, kill them all. It was different instructions, different places. But essentially, the Lord would say, you take it and you drive out everybody else. I'm giving you these lands. This is the promised land. But if you have your Bible, look at the book of Joshua and we're just going to see some backstory or judges. I'm sorry. Before we dig into the life of Gideon, I want you to see the setup of what's going on. Look in chapter one. They were told to drive out the inhabitants, but look at verse 27. Chapter one, verse 27 says Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Sheen. And its villages. Look down at verse 29. Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. Verse 30. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron. 31. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko. Verse 33. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh. And the story goes on and on and on. And what we see as the book of Judges opens is that the people of God have now made a very sharp transition from conquest to compromise. It's no longer about obeying God no matter what he's told us to do. It's mm, I think we, we could do this a little differently. And what started as subtle, um, you know. We're going to try this another way turns into all out rebellion. The book of Judges um, is probably the most depressing book in the Bible. Uh, So we're going to spend three weeks in it. (laughs) Bless you. Uh, Bless your souls. Um, The reason it's important for us to spend time here is because we live here. We constantly compromise what God has called us to do. We're constantly negotiating levels of obedience with God. And we're going to learn from the book of Judges and from these leaders that God doesn't play that way. I want you to see a summary of the whole book. It's the very last verse of the book of Judges. It summarizes the whole story. 350 years. This is the summary of the whole book. The very last verse says this. In those days. There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now I want you to think about that last expression. 
Because isn't that a good description of our culture and our world that we live in? Everyone does what is right in his own eyes. Doesn't matter what anybody says to me. Doesn't matter what God says. Doesn't matter what God wants, what God's rules are. Doesn't matter. It's my truth. I'm going to do what I want to do. You do you. I do me. Right? You've heard that? Listen to what the Bible says in the last verse of the book of Judges. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. What we see through the book of Judges is a terrible cycle for life. It's terrible. It reminds me a little bit, actually, of um, when my firstborn daughter, she was three years old. We got her this um, two-seater convertible pink um, Ford Mustang Barbie car. And uh, it was like 15 bucks at a yard sale. But that little, that little battery had a little giddy-up left in it. And uh, she loved it. We'd, she'd get in that thing and she'd just pedal to the metal. Just, she'd start flying, scooting around the yard. And dad was watching my little girl driving this car. And um, I was thinking, oh, when she's 16, this is going to be ugly <laughs> because we're not there yet. So y'all pray for me when we get there. But I remember my role was to run along beside that little pink Barbie car. And right, right before she smashes into a tree, I'm just jerking the wheel, right? Just jerk the wheel. She comes over this way. It's just pedal to the metal. And right before we're off in the ditch, just jerk the wheel. That was my job. Just to kind of run along beside and jerk the wheel. Well, through the book of Judges, what we're seeing is that God is constantly raising up leaders that that's what they do. They jerk the wheel. The people of Israel, the people of God are constantly going off course. Bad, like about to go off the ditch. And then God raises up a a judge, a leader to sort of jerk the wheel and pull the people back in line. The pattern of the book of Judges is really important that we discuss this because this is our pattern today. So if you're taking notes, I want you to write these words down. The pattern in the book of Judges, and it really repeats about seven times, but it goes like this. Rebellion. Ruin. Repentance. Rescue. Then the people experience rest. And then you know what? Relapse. This is the cycle of the book of Judges. It's been worded many different ways. This is just the one I came up with. They rebel against God. It starts out subtle. It's small little decisions. Just negotiating obedience. And then utter rebellion. Rebellion sets in and God allows their disobedience to have its effect. And ruin is the result. The people are in ruin. And then... They experience and realize how terrible life is and they cry out to the Lord. They, in some way or another, repent and they come back to God. We've sinned against you, Lord. Help. Repentance. As the people repent, God rescues. He swoops in and rescues them with a judge. He raises up a judge, a leader, a rescuer. Then the people experience some time of rest. They're like, oh, thank God. He saved us. This is wonderful. And that time of rest ultimately leads its way back into relapse. And they repeat the cycle. I don't know if we have any former addicts in the house, but maybe you resonate right with this cycle. Uh, This is this is common. And it's not just for addiction. This is everyday life, like 
All of us. This is your journey. As you begin disobeying God in subtle ways, you can expect that he's going to allow you to wander off the path and feel the pain of your disobedience. Once you get off the off the beaten path into the ditch and the gravel over there, then you start realizing, oh, no, I'm, I'm really messing this up. And you cry out to God and he swoops in because he's gracious and kind. He rescues you. You experience great rest. And then you know what happens? You think you don't need him anymore and you relapse. So this is the cycle of the book of Judges. It is depressing, um, incredibly depressing. Um, so. Um, it's named for judges. These are not people in robes in a courtroom. It's just the, the Bible's word for like a tribal leader who is a rescuer. Uh, and these guys, um, 12 of them, one lady, they are to be God's vessel, his tools for pulling the people of God, sort of jerking the wheel, pulling them back on track. So I hope as we look at Gideon today, one of those judges, uh, what we will see is a shadow of a man who is a rescuer, but he's not the ultimate rescuer. Uh, He's not the ultimate hero the people of God need. In in fact, Gideon leaves us longing for a true and better rescuer, and his name is Jesus Christ. So by now you've found your place in Judges 6, and like I said, because it uh, takes some time, this is uh, three chapters. We're just going to read some portions, but it might take a minute. So will you stand with me? I want us to get into God's Word and read together. going to move as quickly as we can. Um, so just to lead us into this story, the people of God, they're into the promised land now, but because they've rebelled against God, he has allowed their enemies to come in and just trounce them. And right now, the biggest enemy is the Midianites, this people group, the Midianites. Every time there comes a harvest, the Midianites come in and they just take all their food and uh, cause a terrible havoc. And so the Lord comes, uh, the people cry out to God for rescue, the Lord sends a prophet, and then the Lord sends a rescuer. And that's where we pick up the story. Look with me at verse 11, chapter 6, verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abyssalite, while his son Gideon was beating out the wheat in the winepress. Well, that's interesting. To hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? He said to him, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you. And you shall strike the Midianites as one man. He said to him, if now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speaks with me. 
Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay until you return. So let me summarize what happens next. Gideon goes in his tent. He prepares a meal, meat, unleavened bread, some broth. He comes back out. The angel of the Lord, which, by the way, is who? Yeah, right. We've talked about this many times. When the Bible says in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord, it's talking about a pre-incarnate Christ. So this is Jesus coming before he came, right? So Gideon, um, the angel tells Gideon to set the, set the food down and just pour the broth over top of it. It's kind of weird. He must have liked soggy bread. I don't know. But, um, so he pours the broth over top of it, and the, the angel of the Lord takes his staff and touches the meal, and it goes up in flames. As soon as it goes up in flames, he disappears. And all of a sudden, Gideon knows that wasn't any ordinary angel. I've just been talking to God himself. And he's afraid for his life. Now, the, the Lord who disappeared, right? He speaks to Gideon because the Lord's never not there. He speaks to Gideon and he says, don't be afraid. You will not surely die. But he gives him instructions. I want you to go to your father's house and go uh, in the backyard there where you guys have an altar to Baal. And the Asherah pole that's there, these are idol worshiping things. He says, I want you to tear them down and build an altar to me. So Gideon goes, he's scared. He's afraid to do it in the daytime because he's afraid of what everybody will do. But he goes that night, he destroys those idols, builds an altar to the Lord. And the next day he was right to be scared. All the people around are wanting him dead. They want to kill him because he's torn down their idols. And Joash, his father, defends him. He steps in and says, whoa, 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 leave Gideon alone. If, if Baal is a god, he can take care of himself. And so they ended up name, renaming Gideon Jerubal, which means um, Baal can contend for himself. So I guess the boldness of Gideon stirred his own father to be bold as well. Well, it's at that point that Gideon is feeling encouraged. He's feeling confidence to do what God has told him to do, which is... Deliver the people from the Midianites. So at that point, let's pick up the scripture again. And we're in chapter 6, verse 33. Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. They're getting ready for battle. All their enemies have come together in this huge valley. Now look at verse 34. But the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon and he sounded the trumpet and the Abyssalites were were called to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout Manasseh and they too called to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher and Zebulun and Naphtali and they went up to meet him. So he's gathering an army. Then Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there's dew on the fleece alone and it's dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early the next morning, he squeezed out the fleece. He wrung it out enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me, but let me speak just once more. Please let me test you just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only and on all the ground. Let there be dew. And God did so that night. And it was dry on the fleece only and on all the ground. There was dew. 
Then Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, this is chapter 7, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Moreh in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, now listen to this, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Now wait, the Midianite army is about 135,000 people. Gideon has managed to gather, by God's grace, 32,000 people. So they're outnumbered significantly, like four to one. And God says to Gideon, hey, the people with you are too many. What? I'm sure Gideon was thinking, you're right, the people with me are too, wait, are too what? Are too many, are too many. Well, then the Lord explains, and this is really important. Lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Now, therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. So we're down down to 10,000 men. Gideon's like, oh, wow. They outnumbered us four to one. Now it's like 12 to 1, 13 to 1. Okay, Lord. Well, then the Lord decides to shrink the army even further. And ultimately they get down to 300. We're going to find out what the Lord does in a moment. But would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We discover so much about you in these pages. So much about you, Lord. So, God, as we come to this scripture, we're wanting to know you better, to love you deeper, to trust you more fully, to obey you totally. We do not want to be a people of compromise, but a people of great conquest, great commitment to you, Lord. Help us. Jesus, show us who you are in these scriptures. For your name's sake, we pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. So, wow, this is an incredible text of Scripture. It's actually really fun to read. I wanted to read more of it, but I could see you guys were shifting on your, on your legs and sort of, you know. I stand the whole time. I don't know what's wrong with y'all. Um, this is one of the most well-known stories in the Bible, especially the bit about the fleece, right? You've heard about that. Well, just put out a fleece, you know. Uh, a lot of people, I guess, tend to make decisions that way, like like to ask God, you know, what do I need to do? I need to know what you want me to do. Where's that fleece? Where's that fleece? Yeah. Uh, throw out a fleece. Let God wet it. You know, um, maybe you've done things like that and asked the Lord for a sign. And it's OK, but probably you've discovered that's not meant to be the formula Uh, by which we discern God's will. If you're looking for an example to follow, surely there are better ones than Gideon. Uh, And we'll discover that in a moment. Let me remind you as we dig into the text that all the Bible, you've heard me say this now many times through this series, but all the Bible, including Gideon's story, all the Bible is meant to tell us who God is. Who God is. And how he intends to save us. This is what the Bible is all about. So when you pick it up, you don't want to read this story and then go, I've been wondering 
what I needed to do with my life. And now I know I've been missing this fleece thing. (laughs) I needed a fleece all along. That's not the point of the story. The story is telling us who God is, what kind of God we have and how he aims to save us. So from this text, asking this question, this question, who is God? These are some answers that I think we should we should find from the scripture. First truth is this. God is faithful, even when we are not. God is faithful, even when we are not. The people were suffering under the oppression of the Midianites. And they cried out to the Lord and God sent them a prophet in verses um, chapter six, verses seven through ten. We didn't read that, but a prophet comes to them and he reminds them that God had redeemed them and rescued them from the land of Egypt. He brought them out of slavery and set them free, that God had led them into a promised land. And he had told them, if you'll just follow my commands, life will be glorious. We will do life together again. It was going to be like a new Garden of Eden, like the Garden of Eden take two. And exactly that happened. Just as Adam and Eve fell in the garden, so did the people of God in the promised land. God told them, don't fear the gods of the Amorites. Just drive those people out and live for me in the land that I'm giving you. And you look at the end of verse 10 in chapter six and the prophet says to them, but you have not obeyed my voice. This is a tough word from the prophet. You know, the people of God had cried out for help and God sent them a preacher. (laughs) It's probably not the help they wanted. But what he told them was. The suffering you're enduring is because of your own rebellion. The solution lies within that that preaching. It is this. Stop rebelling. Repent. Turn to God. Well, what I want us to see here is that God is faithful even when we're not. He didn't have to come to them. God didn't have to rescue his people. But they cry out to him and he's faithful. He comes The angel of the Lord comes to Gideon and even Gideon tells Christ, the angel of the Lord, he says that God has forsaken us. But ironically, it was the people who had abandoned God. The Lord let them wander off in their disobedience. So many of us, I think, know this story all too well because it's our own lives. You know, we think. That the grass looks greener over there, right? In that, that other pasture. Well, the grass, well, it sure does look good over there. That's green grass. And then we get over there and we realize, well, this is greener because there's a septic tank underneath it, right? This is, this is nasty green. You didn't know, but it just looked green. It's really bad. <laughs> really. Ah, that's good. So God heard their cries for rescue and he comes to them. And it's not because they're good. It's because God is good. He is gracious and merciful and kind. And God loves sinners. Is that good news? It's good news for me, a sinner. So you can wander off the path, sink into deep suffering and hardship 
And then as soon as you call out in repentance to God, no matter how far you've drifted, he's right there. And this is because God is faithful. We come to know God through the rest of Scripture. It uses a a Hebrew word. I want you guys to practice some Hebrew. You ready? See if you can say this. You've got to get kind of back in here with it. Right? It's this word. Chesed. Can y'all try that? Chesed. <laughs> say you're sorry to whoever you just spit on. Um, so that's the Hebrew word. Chesed. Here's what it means. You ready? It means steadfast love. Steadfast love. I could, I, there's probably 18 ways to describe it. But let me tell you to you this way. It's God's covenant love. It's the love of God that says, I will, even when you don't. I love you even when you don't. I'm faithful to you even when you're not. I am love. Do you know that? Like, we act out our love, but God is love. He's the unchanging attribute of love. It is His Chesed love, unchanging, steadfast, committed, covenant love. He's faithful even when you're not. And it's reason to love and trust Him. Psalm 33 that Pedro read to us. I don't know if the word sunk into you, but that word chesed, that's how you say it, is in that paragraph twice. It's in verse 18. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him, on those who hope in His chesed, His steadfast love, His character, His nature as a God of covenant, unchanging, steady, one-way love. That's verse 18. Now look at what verse 22 says. But let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in You. This is all we have, church. If God were changing like you are, we'd be in trouble. If he were as flighty and flaky as we are, it'd be terrible. But God has a steadfast, consistent covenant, chesed love. It's who he is. He's faithful even when we are not. Number two, God comes to rescue sinners. He comes to rescue sinners. Now, I always want to push you and remind you that you are one, (laughs) right? It's just a good thing that we constantly admit. It keeps us on level ground, right? Everyone in the room is a what? Yes. Okay, that's right. Uh, If you have a hard time admitting that, it's because there's pride in your heart and you're a sinner. (laughs) So am I. But the beautiful thing about our God is he comes to rescue sinners. Israel has sinned against the Lord. That's what he just told them. You have not obeyed what I told you to do. Gideon is a sinner. He's got idols in his father's backyard. But the angel of the Lord comes to Gideon because God is so gracious. It's it's grace. Some people say to me, well, I serve the God of the New Testament. He's a God of grace. Well, we're we're reading Judges. And there's grace all over this. God could have just wiped him out, but he comes in grace to sinful, hiding Gideon and his sinful, hiding people. He's the God of grace. Now, 
We see the angel of the Lord here. We've discussed many times, but this is Christ, the pre-incarnate Christ. He's the second person of the Trinity. This is why he speaks in this text with such divine authority. He speaks as God because he is God. And then it's why when Gideon finally realizes it's him, he's afraid for his life because anyone who sees God dies. But what does this angel, what has he come to do? Well, he makes it super clear when he talks to Gideon. He says, I'm rising you up, O mighty man of valor, to rescue the people from the Midianites. God has come to rescue them, but not just from Midian. He's come to rescue them from themselves as well. As we've talked about, Israel is desperately sinful at this point. They've begun hiding out in the caves. I don't know if you can imagine this, but I've thought, just kind of tried to put myself in their shoes for a little bit and thought through what it would have been like to live with that constant fear. You've got this people group, this sort of um, uh, marauders, you know, they just come and go. And as they come, they come in and they wipe out your harvest. They burn your tents. They destroy your stuff and they outnumber you. You know, 10 to 1. And so what do you do? You, there's nothing you do. As a small child, I'm thinking, this, this kid's like, hey, mom, can, can I bring my toys this time when we go to the cave? No, baby, we can't take anything. We only can take what's necessary. Well, how long do you think we'll be in the cave? I don't know. How long, however long it takes them to get all our stuff. Will my bed be here when we get back? Probably not. This went on for seven years of just constant fear and running and hiding out in the caves. And then finally the Lord comes to rescue. Israel's a mess. Gideon is also a mess. But God comes to save. God is patiently building the confidence of a very fearful and insecure man. If you really look at who Gideon is, that's what you see. He's a man who's very insecure. He's afraid to tear down idols because he's afraid of what everybody will say and do and think. He's afraid to lead an army because he's just afraid to lead an army. He's afraid to fail in battle. He's afraid. He's afraid everywhere he turns. He's insecure. But God is patiently encouraging him. If if courage, like we talked about at the beginning, is um, having the will, the drive to do what you're afraid to do then to encourage would be to instill that will into someone else. It would be to help them to do what they're afraid to do. And if we look at what the Holy Spirit, what God through this angel is doing in Gideon's life, it is that he's giving him all these signs to give him confidence and courage, help him to do what he's afraid to do. God uses Gideon. But not because he's so great, not because Gideon is so great, but because God is so great. He uses the weak to shame the strong. That's what 1 Corinthians one twenty seven says. He even uses fearful, failing, power gripped leaders to work for his people, to rescue them and to fulfill his promises. All right, let's finish the story for a minute. What happens at the end of the story? Grab your Bibles again. I won't make you stand, but rather than just tell the story, I want to read it. Um, It's going to take just a few minutes. So go back to the book of Judges. God makes the, the armies drink water 
And um, the 10,000 soldiers come down to the river. They drink and and the Lord tells them the ones who drink it like a dog and sort of scoop it and lap it with with their tongue, put them to the side. And the other men that get on their knees to drink the water, put them to the side. And so Gideon does that. He and his assistant, they're watching him drink the water. And they're like, oh, you you're over there. Okay, you you're over there. And they divide them up and they're like, well, 300 men are over here and 9,700 over here. And I imagine Gideon and Pura, his partner, are like, well, you know, we're losing 300, but it's, it's okay. And the Lord's like, send all of them home. <laughs> and, and it's like, what? 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 And so the Lord shrinks the army down to 300 men. Now at that point, Gideon's scared to go to battle. It's now 300 versus 135,000. So look what the Lord does again. So patient, so kind to encourage Gideon. Chapter 7, look at verse 9. That same night, the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I've given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and you shall hear what they say. And afterward, your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. Their camels were without number as the sand on the seashore is abundant. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, behold, I dreamed a dream. And behold, a cake of barley bread was tumbling into the camp of Midian. It came to the tent and struck it. So that it fell and turned upside down so that the tent lay flat. His comrade answered, I know what this dream means, right? He says, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. All right, pause for a minute. If you don't laugh just a little bit about this dream, um, can you imagine a big rolling loaf of bread? And Gideon is looking at his buddy. Maybe they're hiding behind a bush and he's like, loaf of bread. And then the guy goes, that bread is Gideon. He's like, Gideon, (laughs) this just this story blows my mind. It's the grace of God to encourage his fearful, insecure leader. So what does Gideon do? Verse 15, as Gideon, as soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the 300 men into three companies, put trumpets in the hands of of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then you blow your trumpets also on every side and all the camp and you shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch of the night. And when they had just set the watch and they blew the trumpets and smashed their jars that were in their hands and the three companies blew the trumpets and broke their jars. They held in their hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow and they cried out a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. And when they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. 
And the army fled as far as Bethshita towards Zerera, as far as the border of Abel-Meholah by Tabath. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and Asher and all from Manasseh. They pursued after Midian. Crazy stuff. Crazy. So Gideon gets his 300 men. They circle around the camp of Midian. They've got their torches in a jar to keep the torch covered. They got a trumpet. So these are their weapons, right? Warfare. A trumpet, a jar, and a torch. These are soldiers, vicious men. They're like a loaf of bread. And they stand around the camp of Midian. And as soon as Gideon blows the trumpet, whatever it is, and then he shouts, he takes the jar off the torch so that his flame is visible. He smashes his jar and it makes this loud crash. All the 300 men follow suit. And it's this sound. In the middle of the night, these men in their camp, they wake up, they look up, they're hearing crashing trumpets, shouting. They go outside and they look and they just see torches all the way around and they are panicked. They're so disoriented. God has worked to confuse them. They turn on each other. They just start slashing with their swords and they're just killing whomever they can kill. And the Bible tells us in the next chapter that over 100,000 men killed themselves. Now, why does it happen this way? It's very similar to the story of Jericho, isn't it? The people march around, they blow a trumpet, they shout, the walls come down. I mean, it's a strange battle plan. Very similar. Why? Why does God do it this way? And it's because of this third truth. God will not share His glory. He will not share His glory. God chose Gideon precisely because he was the least of the weakest tribe. Why? Well, because when God does great things through weak men, God gets all the glory. Gideon's first mission was to tear down idols in his dad's backyard. Why? Well, because God alone deserves the worship and glory of all people. And it was being given to false gods. So his first order of duty as a leader is to tear that stuff down and get the people worshiping and giving glory to God. He will not share his glory. God shrunk Gideon's army from 32,000 all the way down to 300 men. Why? Well, he made it crystal clear. Why didn't he? Chapter 7, verse 2, he said, Lest Israel boast over me and say, My own hand has saved me. God wanted to make it super clear. I'm the one saving you. No one else is getting my glory. The Lord told Gideon, The people with you are too many. Let's shrink it down. Make sure nobody steals my glory. God is a God who works With the impossible. That's what he does. He works. He actually prefers impossible settings. Do you remember Elijah with the prophets of Baal on the mountain? Mount Carmel. Elijah said, hey, before we call down fire from heaven, let's dump all that water on top of it. You know, because water is good for fire. 
right? No, God actually works to make things impossible so that when he does something incredible, everybody goes, that had to be God. And God will not share his glory. There's a passage I couldn't help but think about in Isaiah 48. And I want to read it to you. Just a few verses. Listen to what the Lord says here. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. Aren't you thankful God defers his anger? But why does he do it? For his name's sake. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. That's what's going on with Israel, right? They've been tried for seven years under the oppression of Midian, the furnace of affliction. Why? For my own sake. If you didn't hear it, he says it again. For my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profane? Look at this last phrase. My glory, I will not give to another. God will not share his glory. The New Testament call is to us in all that we do. In all that we do, whether we eat or drink, may it be to the glory of God. Fourth truth about God from this text is this. God brings victory to his people. What an incredible story of victory. 300 surround the camp, blow their trumpet, shout, crash their jars. And in a moment, the Lord delivers victory to his people. Now, why does God fight this way so often? I mean, you can read through the text of the Old Testament and you can see the Lord gives victory to his people. He gives it. And it's because I believe these victories, wartime conquest victories, are an earthly shadow of a spiritual truth, spiritual reality. God gives spiritual victory to his people as well. And the way we fight into that victory is the way that Gideon fought into that victory. It's the way of faith. It's to, it's to learn that God alone is able to do this. God alone can do this in my life. I need only be totally dependent on Him. Maybe we look around at life and we go, mm, you know what? I actually need to shrink my army a little bit. I need to get to a place where I'm utterly dependent on God. The spiritual journey that we're on is a journey of learning to trust Him more. That's what I was talking about with Bo about this morning. It's, not, it's no longer about trying harder. It's about trusting more. We don't try harder to be better. We trust more in the one who is better. Jesus Christ is our utter fulfillment and satisfaction. We look to Him for our hope. Gideon is a highlight for us in this story because we're so much like him. Many of us insecure, faithless, failing at every turn, needing God to prove himself over and over again. And God is so gracious to us. After Gideon defeated their enemies, the people had rest for 40 years. 
rest. The people wanted to make Gideon king. You can read about it in chapter 8. But Gideon deferred. He said, let the Lord rule over you. Sounds really high and mighty, right? It was the right words, but it was the wrong heart. The very next thing Gideon did is he told the people to bring to him the gold from the spoils of war. They melted that gold down and they made an ephod, which is like a cloak that a priest would wear. That cloak became an idol. And the people of God began to worship it. Gideon then had a child with a woman, not his wife. That child he named Abimelech. That name doesn't ring a bell for you probably, but it means son of the king. Now wait a minute. If Gideon said, let the Lord rule over you, I don't need to be your king. But then he has a child and he names his boy son of the king. What does Gideon really think of himself? Well, as we've seen, the people had rebelled. They were in ruin. God brought rescue through Gideon. They had rest. But guess what happened? Relapse. That's the story we'll move to. But before we move on, I want you to see how Gideon's story tells us about Christ. And this is how I want us to finish because it's always pointing us to Jesus. Gideon is obviously not the hero they'd longed for, but there are some parallels we should take note of. The people had forsaken the Lord and they'd followed other gods and they were thus under the dominion of Midian. In the same way, when Christ came, the people of Israel were such syncretists. Let's just combining religions. Let's just make something that works. We're going to negotiate our obedience and it'll be okay until Rome began to oppress them. And they were under Roman oppression when Jesus came. They cried out from, for help from God, right? In, in Gideon's day, God sent a prophet in the same way. The people cried out for help and John the Baptist came and prepared the way of the Lord. God's first deliverance wasn't from Midian, it was from their idols, from their sinful broken hearts. And in the same way, when Jesus came, he didn't come to deliver from Rome, he came to rescue from sin. The Lord Jesus, the angel himself, appeared to Gideon and called him up to be the rescuer. But in the New Testament, Christ himself came in the flesh to be our ultimate rescuer. Gideon was afraid of his peers and his enemies. Christ had no fear of man. Gideon's people tried to kill him for tearing down their idols. He hid while his father defended him. But Jesus was actually put forward by his father to be the sacrifice that saves those who wanted him dead. Unlike Gideon, Jesus wasn't scared of his enemies. He actually loved them to death. He didn't need signs. He performed them so others could believe. He didn't forget God's power and presence. He relied on it regularly through prayer. And although Gideon accused the Lord of abandoning him, Jesus was willingly and truthfully, truly forsaken by the Father. And he was forsaken so that we sinners can be forgiven. Church, listen. We don't need a wet or dry fleece to know that God is with us. We need only come to Jesus 
rest in the hope that he gives because he's a God of steadfast love. We join him on his mission to save sinners, just like we witnessed this morning. We join Christ on his mission to rescue others. And as we do that, Jesus promises, and I will be with you always, even to the end of the age.